And g'day, here we are on Fuzzy Logic 2XX, your science on a Sunday. Now, I want you to imagine that you're going to the doctor and they're going to do a health checkup on you. Uh, what's the first thing they're going to do? Well, it's a pretty good guess that will be they're going to check your pulse, your blood pressure, and maybe they'll even do a blood test to see what's in your blood. And I think that's a lot like a river system, a water system of a country. If you have a healthy river and healthy water, that's a pretty good start to having a healthy landscape. Now, I'm very pleased to have dragged into the studio an old young friend of mine, uh, Leon Metzling. And Leon was a senior water scientist at the Victorian EPA for 30 years. G'day, Leon. G'day, Rod. How are you? And I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> now, you and I and our friends were riding our bicycles along the Bolonglo River upstream from the Lake Burley Griffin a couple of days ago. Very nice it was. But when you look at a water like that, how would you know that it's a healthy river? Yeah, well, just thinking about your um, visiting the doctor analogy, there's some things which are stand out as something you check for immediately. One thing it would be colour. You know, I've seen streams that are pink, iridescent blue, you know, various other colours, you know, and that's not natural, is it? And so, you know, they're obviously because of some sort of pollution event. So when we were riding alongside the Malonglo, it looked normal colour. It was a, you know, I was not going to say blue, but, you know, it was sort of that typical watery colour, bit of grey, bit of green, bit of blue, you know, that's that sort of thing. So colour's a bit of a immediate thing. And quite quite a bit of sediment in the water there, wasn't there? Yeah, and so uh, sediment is is a normal thing in rivers. If I come from Melbourne, and you know, famously the Yarra River flows upside down. It's a very turbid, muddy-looking river. Not all the rivers like that. Malongo is not like that. It tends to be much clearer. In my sort of terminology, the turbidity levels are much lower, um, and so it's uh, light can penetrate more deeply. So turbid waters can be natural but they're often an indication of there's been something going on you know flood waters are very turbid for example so water you know, during a flood event carries a lot of soil off the, off the land it carries a lot of other stuff off the land well up, upstream uh, the river gets quite small quite narrow uh, but we were still under the influence of the lake or the 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 river was very close to the is still affected by Lake Burley Griffin there, I think. And uh, so that might have been a bit of sediment coming back up from the lake. So many years ago, there was the Captain's Flat mine upstream and it dumped zinc and lead and uh, arsenic and all sorts of stuff into the river. And I can remember sailing our dinghy on the lake and we tipped it upside down once. And when the mast came back up again, there was a big dollop of gloopy mud <laughs> dipping down the sail. So that's obviously one possible impact uh, effect of the river there yeah yeah like um it's it's not unusual at all for streams downstream and mines to be polluted by heavy metals you know un it's an unfortunate um feature and you know it's not not good and where those practices have occurred in the past it's it's been bad but we should be much better nowadays there should be much tighter controls on what's what can be released for mines and so things should be better. They did a lot of remediation work on the mine site, and I think they've done a lot to 
prevent the pollution into the river. All right, so the colour is, is the, the first thing you see. What's the, what's oh, the, the, next, the, the, the next thing? Things like, you know, um, I know algae, algae can be problems in the lake and certainly can be pushed back up into, the, um, into that part of the river. Um, and so you, you, I know there's, there's algal blooms occurring in that type of water body. Uh, the algal blooms typically aren't a big feature of rivers, but they certainly can happen for sure. You know, like um, you know, we're seeing some consequences of probably algal blooms um, in some waterways, maybe not the, the primary cause for the fish kills up in the, the Darling, but um, algae have been known to kill fish in, in the past. So, but algae can also smell. You know, um, so you know the blue greens have a typical musty odor, and that, that's certainly what I smelt when I was down by the lake the other day. You know, there's blue greens around the edges and a musty odor, and you think, okay, you know, there's blue greens. But blue greens have been—they're the oldest form of life, so they're around forever. They're a permanent feature. We just so, need just need to acknowledge that they're there and take precautions. Okay, so a healthy river can have some blue green algae in it. Yeah, actually, it's not strictly an algae, is it? Cyanobacteria, very correct. <laughs> right now, there is a, a real problem with uh, blue green in the Tuggeranong lakes in the south side of Canberra, but that's really got a lot of urban encroachment on it. And the Malonglo, it's flowing through farmland, uh, through past Queanbeyan, in fact. So a little bit of farmland, as we saw the yeah. the cows. Yeah, like yeah, there will be algae there, and. Algae are important. They're primary producers. That's the bottom of the food chain, and they're important for for water aquatic ecosystems. So they'll always be there, and it's important that they are there. It's problems when they bloom and they get into high concentrations. Now, typically, in flowing waters, the blooms don't have a chance to form. But but um, but I say typically because sometimes they do. But and so in, in slow flow conditions, typically in summer when water volumes decrease and pools are become, well, pools are created, then you get algal blooms quite quite commonly. But there's lots of algae, and not all of them are bad at all. So uh, it sounds like a healthy stomach. Healthy stomach's got a real, <laughs> yeah, uh, real mix, a very diverse mix of bacteria and parasites, even and maybe viruses. I don't know. But uh, you're actually walking ecosystem. So a river is a, is a complex thing, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Like um, a famous, probably the most famous stream ecologist said years ago, the valley rules the stream. And um, you know, and basically that's just saying what happens in the valley ends up in the stream. The stream's at the at the low point in the valley, and so it kind of captures all the drainage that comes off the valley. The valley meaning the catchment. The you know the Whatever happens in for the Malonga Lake, it's a bit of urban around Canberra, <clears throat> a bit of agric agricultural further further up, and the, what runs off that land will end up in the stream and affect the life in there. Oh, for good or for good or for bad. Like some of it might be, you know, benign. You know, like streams do require nutrients. You know, because there's plants growing in there and they do require nutrients. So a small amount of nutrients are, are good. A large amount of nutrients are bad. So, you know, a large amount of nutrients could um, promote the algal growth under under those right conditions, or could promote larger, you know, larger plant growth, which could end up choking particularly smaller waterways and, and water bodies. So, you know, there's just like with us, you know, a small amount of food is good. A large amount of food 
is bad. <laughs> uh, the wrong amount of food. We're not yeah. going to be drinking yeah. beer after we've recorded this show, are we? Definitely not not to ex- excessive levels anyway. No, but you mentioned plants. So one of the features of a lot of the waterways around Canberra and much of Australia, uh, in fact, are the really dense willow congregations. So uh, the, the little stream near our house in, uh, in Belconnen really choked with the crack willows and a few years ago they came through and removed them and I think they've been controlling them along the Malonglo but what would you say about the vegetation that you saw? Yeah, there's, it's, I, I, I can't recall spending too much time thinking about it but there's a lot of willows, you're right and it's common in this part of the world and lots of streams. For larger streams, they, I guess they're not a, a huge problem. For smaller streams like the one that you mentioned near your place the roots can expand and cover the the substrate and they do end up sort of simplifying the substrate the the spider one talking about the substrate means the, the the bottom of the stream the the rocks the whatever's at the bottom underwater and so it can become like a complete just root mass and that's that's not great for the animals that want to live there and also willows have that um um uh, deciduous lifestyle you know where they drop all their leaves at a certain time and it's not a, not something that Australian ecosystems are designed to cope with. Um. So um, you know, eucalypts drop their leaves, you know, quite a bit over summer, so that's fine. But willows drop a lot in about now, you know, in autumn, and that, that's so. There's a sudden influx of organic material into the streams from these introduced trees, the deciduous trees. Again, that's adds to the nutrient load, and you know, and the, the cascading effects from that. So. Willows can be bad. Um, at the same time, they do have a benefit in some places of stabilising the banks. So uh, bank erosion is a serious problem in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, the blanket removal of willows can create problems if it's not done carefully. You know, if you're not done doing something to stabilise the banks and re- revegetate it. Like a, 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 a fish biologist I knew... I, I do know he's still still going. Um, used to have a sign on his door that fish need trees, and um, what that was referring to is that um, the way that particularly Australian native trees drop branches. If they're overhanging the stream, they'll drop branches in the stream. There'll be scour effects around the branches. Deep holes will be formed, and these can be great places for fish to hang out in because you know to avoid the, the fast current to rest in there and to have their um. To, to take their rest. So that gives them breeding sites as well and yeah. so on. Yeah, yeah. so so, okay. so the riparian vegetation is really important. By, by riparian, I mean what's up on the streamside zone. Um, and that should be considered part of the stream as well because those a lot of those plants are really dependent on having sort of their feet wet, having their being close to water. And so there's a typical vegetation community around streams that you won't find further away from streams. Now, this is probably significant if you're in an agricultural setting. So the Malonglo is largely flowing through a city. Uh, but uh, if farmers and how they manage their land, and of course, the well, we had the soldier settler scheme where they were paid a bounty to remove trees and so on and strip vegetation. And so the riparian zones uh, on farmland is really, really important. But uh, let's let's say now that you so you've had your look around the river, 
you, you've done an initial, so you look at it and you smell it and you see the vegetation and the obvious things about it. So let's just say you were uh, an EPA science uh, scientist still and you were going to do an assessment of that river. What would it, what's the next thing you would do? Could take some actual water quality measurements because there's there's things that the eyes can tell us, but there's other things which require some um, instrumentation to get some some more information. And you know, one of the classic ones, one of the key ones, is dissolved oxygen. Um, a lot of the animals, most of the animals that live in the water, require oxygen. Either they can get it from the water it's itself via gills, or they come to the surface or they live on on or at the surface and, and um, get the water from the air. So um, oxygen is critical. Then there's other things like salinity. Um, Australian streams are relatively salty compared to many streams elsewhere. Uh, sodium chloride dominated, just like the sea. And the Malonglo would, I'd expect, to be fairly fresh. Like you wouldn't taste the salt at all. But um, it Salt can be a problem in places. Some I've measured some streams in Victoria which are double seawater in concentration, and you know partly that's because they're intersecting with groundwater, and groundwater in many places in Australia is incredibly salty, and and um, normally it doesn't intersect directly. But in this particular case that I'm thinking of, which is the Wimmera River in Western Victoria, um, the river had cut through the, uh, groundwater aquifer called the Perilla Sands and water was directly going in and yes it was about double seawater. Yes I've, I've travelled through some of the Wimmera and seen whole paddocks basically just uh, salt lake yeah. and I presume they're not natural I, d I don't know but uh, so there's a lot of very heavy salt. Let's continue this conversation about how to measure the, the technically the, the water quality uh, after we have a little song break here on Fuzzy Logic with my guest uh, Leon Metzling, who's a former senior water scientist at the Victorian Environmental Protection Agency. Authority. Authority. <laughs> oh, sorry. At least I didn't say administration like they do in the US. <laughs> All right, let's break to a song uh, here on Fuzzy Logic. There's something about a natural waterway that is really special and it's relaxing and we did we did enjoy our uh, bicycle ride around uh, along the river a couple of days ago. Now, you were talking, Leon, uh, our, our guest here on Fuzzy Logic, about uh, how you assess the health of a waterway and you were saying dissolved oxygen and other chemicals in it. So do you want to pick up on that? Sure. Just... I guess people have been measuring the chemical aspects of waters for a long time, you know, well over 100 years. Um, and they're important because they affect what we can do with the water. Um, like it, I mentioned salinity before, and, you know, it's important for, for people, you know, you don't want to be drinking salty water, you want to be drinking fresh water, but also you don't want to be putting water that's too salty onto crops because that'll, you know, kill, kill the plants. So there's a lot of the measurements uh, related to how we want to use the water as well. Um, there's other things we could measure, like we mentioned, we mentioned like the the metals downstream of the of the mine, and often they're a pretty commonly measured thing in an urban setting because there's plenty of sources of heavy metals in an urban setting. Road runoff, for example, full of metals from you know shredded tires, brake pads, etc. You know, oil that leaks. There's a whole lot of you know, it's almost a periodic table of comic of compounds that could be measured in urban runoff. 
So there's there's a lot that can be measured um, like that. But one of the, um, I guess, trends in the last 30 or 40 years was to measure the biological components of waterways because that's getting closer to what we actually care about in terms of rivers and streams. If we're, if we're just interested in you know getting the right water quality to put under crops or for for treatment for water purposes, we can just stick to measuring chemistry. But if we actually care about the animals and plants in the streams, we need to, it's much better to measure them directly. And so um, in the course of my career and well before that as well, people started measuring things like the macroinvertebrates. Um, now macroinvertebrates are the insects, snails, worms, that sort of thing that live in, in streams. And there are thousands upon thousands of them in, in water, waterways. They're the most commonly used indicator for what I'll call river health around the world. Um, they have a lot of advantages. There's a lot of them. They're pretty diverse. They have a range of sensitivities. There's some which are very sensitive to impacts and others which are pretty hardy and live just about anywhere. So the, um, EPA in Victoria and as well as other equivalent organisations around the country have spent a lot of time um, developing indices, working out how to measure things, how to measure the macroinvertebrates properly, and also looking at what was being done overseas as well and learning from the, the Brits and the, and the USA in particular. So we've got systems that, and processes and you know standard protocols and stuff for going and collecting the macroinvertebrates and streams identifying them to a certain level and then giving them a score. I want to bring in an anecdote at this point because good mutual friends of ours, David and Julia and Anne, and I, David had a project studying the health of the Threadbow River and they wanted to know whether the sewage farm up there was had any effect. And so it was the middle of winter and it was snow everywhere. There was ice. The edge of the river was frozen and we waded in about knee deep. And we had these sampling nets with a little wire loop. And you had to pick up every rock inside that loop, wash the underside of it. And then all any little bugs, you can tell me, uh, Coleoptera, Diptera? That, yeah, that's, that's correct. They're the orders of beetles and tree flies. Cool. See, I can drop these names. I don't know. I don't know what they are, but yeah, little things at the the larval stage, and then David and Julie took them back to the labs, and then they did a count, and then did a count of how many of those were in that little space, that little bottle. Boy, it was cold. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so that's an example of that's like a, a river sampling, as you say what actually is in living and not whether the chemical has a real effect on their uh, life, right? Yeah. Like it, there's there, there's more to it. There, there's a lot of thinking going into it as well because those animals need to live there 24-7. They're there for their whole life or most of their life. Some of them emerge as adults and live for a while in, in the air. Uh, but a lot of them are live, living there for you know, 90% of their life, if not their whole life. If you go take a water sample from a stream and most monitoring programs collect water samples once a month so 12 samples a month you actually collecting you know, it takes about a few seconds to fill up a water bottle so you're collecting less than a minute's worth of water from that particular stream over the course of a year now there's nothing to say that you know half an hour after you've collected your water sample something bad happens 
you know, something goes through, particularly if you're in a more developed area, you know, a, a slug from an industry or something happens. And, you know, you, but you've taken your water sample before it happens, so everything's looking rosy. But if you actually, but if you, and you go back a month later and the water quality is fine again, but the, but the stream's kind of dead. But if you go and sample the bugs or some of the living components there, they'll show sign of, of impact. They are, in effect, your samplers. So they're doing the water sampling for you, I guess. They're, they're the recorders. They're recorders, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay, so the insects, the larval stage and so on. Uh, and what other forms of life are you looking at? We predominantly focused on them, but we did look, some of the people in the group looked at um, diatoms, which are single-cell algae. Um, but others in other organisations elsewhere have looked at, like, at fish, at uh, frogs, platypus, um, they're the, the the main ones, and and you know that's that's most of the 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 animals, the animals that and the the plants that um, live in the waterways. Some of them, you know, like there, there's not many fish species in Vic, in this Victoria. Like there's probably I think only about twenty odd native uh, fish. Native fish. Sorry, I should say native fish, and um, and the platypus. There's just the one species. Um, so when I'm and, and often like you only get like three or four species of fish at, at a site and so they're really important from what, what I guess what we value over the rivers for and that's where we and particularly things like like platypus um, they're getting much closer to really what we want the rivers to be like or no, let me say it again like there, there's certain things we value and more than others we don't really like to me personally. I don't value the the chemistry really, but I value the the fish, the platypus, the frogs, the animals, the plants that that live in it's the stream. It's the ecosystem, right? It's the ecosystem, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, measure measuring these range of different things gets us much closer to knowing what the river ecosystem is is if if it's healthy or not. Well, it's a form of life, and there's something intrinsically attractive that we just like. A rich life. I mean, you look across the valley and the green grasses yeah. and the and the trees and everything and the river flowing through and the hills and it just feels there's something really about being human that uh, that that appeals to us. Well, let's say you're you're just a hardcore money person, right? And and you like you got a heart of concrete, <laughs> right? Uh, and we want to talk about the significance of water for the country. And what, what does it mean on that kind of scale, the agriculture and so on? Well, a lot of the things that we rely on in the economy require water. Agriculture is clearly one of the biggest, the biggest user of water. Um, and there are consequences to that. You know, like we, we need to have food. We need to have food to eat and produce material to food and fibre to clothe us and stuff and for exports. So that's important. But um, I think over historically we haven't been careful enough of how we use the water, and so there's a lot of competition for water, and the environment it too often has come off waiting, or it's it gets it gets the, the leftovers. So um, I think people are changing, um, um, people are learning to be more efficient with, with um, how they use water in agriculture. There's some you know, great examples from all over the place about increasing efficiency of, of water usage on 
on um, reducing consumption and yeah, so on. Yeah, you know, and how you know the irrigation systems are getting really efficient, and there's virtually in a lot of them there's not much runoff. Like certainly in Victoria, that where I'm aware, there's water gets recycled, and you know there's there's not the big irrigation outfalls like there used to be. So things have improved. Um, in a lot of places, I think that's probably not so much the case. You know, I know there's problems in the the Murray Darling where there's um, there's sounds like there's not enough water being recovered to um, uh, maintain the river systems. Not that I'm an expert in this, I'm just going on what the media, what I read in the media. Yeah. But um, yeah, the water there's there's competition for water. Well, there's, there's drinking water from towns and cities and a growing population in Australia, and of course we need. We've got accustomed to the fact that you just go turn the tap on and you get this fantastically good quality water and you can drink it any time on any tap. We could walk around our city here and you'd feel quite comfortable about drinking out of a tap, or I, I would. Uh, so that that's obviously one uh, another reason why we need healthy rivers, right? Yeah, it, um, yeah we, we can treat water. Well, obviously, we can treat water to make it... Su- make it suitable for drinking purposes but if we have a good quality ecosystem it requires less treatment i'm not sure if you're aware but melbourne melbourne's water water a lot of it comes from closed catchments and they were closed off to public access in the early 1900s and that's been a fantastic boon it means that um, while there's animals in there which could add to the bacterial contamination in the water they don't have the human-based pathogens and the like and they don't or they don't have townships living in there with you know septic tanks or from industries and other other types of issues so having a large proportion of the melbourne's water means that have a quite a safe water supply except we now have a very extensive logging going on and i don't know how many people are aware just how much logging is going on in the victorian forest and i understand is this true that it's it's affecting the water supply into the city of melbourne not that i've heard um like i'm working at epa i'm not, not involved in the water supply side of things that's definitely a melbourne water um thing um and i I wasn't sure how much logging, if there was any, in the closed catchments. There's plenty of, of adjacent forest adjacent to them in the Upper Latrobe, Upper Thompson. That's where the two big dams are, Upper Thompson in particular. Um, but if there's if there's logging, yep, that can that can have impacts, like the increased sediment runoff. Um, but at least it doesn't have the the other chemicals and. You're not getting the industrial and commercial yeah. and urban runoff. Yeah. Right. Like like and. Um, yeah, the, the, not all, not all the Melbourne's or Victoria's water has that protected catchment area, yeah. and, and and so they have to do more treatment. It's probably a really good example of an ecosystem service, isn't it? Fantastic example. Yeah. Remember, uh, I don't know, maybe it was fifteen odd years ago, where there's that um, cryptosporidium thing in Sydney, where their water supply was contaminated, and you know people weren't able to turn the tap on and get drinking water for a while until they sorted it out. And I think, you know, like it, I think it costs hundreds of millions of dollars in some some way. But um, it, with Melbourne's closed catchments, at least that sort of problem is minimised because right. you're not going to get because it's not a multi-use catchment up there. Um, and you know, while there are kangaroos, wombats, and our deer and stuff, 
So it's, it's, I'm not saying it's free of fecal contamination, but at least it's not. It's pretty good. It's, it's pretty good. Yes, and you've seen reports uh, in the media recently that uh, I don't have the numbers handy, but across the world that we are heading for a worldwide shortage of fresh water. Lots in the oceans, of course, <laughs> but uh, not so good for drinking. We might uh, break to another song, I think, Leon. Um, Sounds good. A bit, a bit of uh, the Rolling Stones. I brought my Rolling Stones CD here on Fuzzy Logic to play with, with my guest, uh, Leon Mensling, senior water scientist on Two Double X. All right, hands up if you know what that music was. Yes, that means you're of the senior set, probably, or you're listening to uh, uh, the Rolling Stones. But you are, in fact, now listening to us on Two Double X, the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, with me, Rod, and my friend Leon Metzling, and we're talking about water. What makes a healthy waterway? Now, Leon, in the news at the moment is this quite uh, disturbing events going on at Menindee. The on the Darling River and this the extent of the fish kill there I don't quite get my head around it but apparently it's enormous like I've seen these pictures look like sea full of dead fish mostly carp I gather but still no uh, you're shaking his head tell me about it now Leon yeah I've only seen the pictures on the news as well Rod um and I've got to say, I'm pretty staggered at the number of and the extent of the dead fish there. Um, from what I've seen, a lot of them are natives. Um, I think I think I read Brim and the Murray Cod, and there's there's, there's the odd carp. There, there's carp there as well. But um, I, I've heard that you know carp in other waterways have just boomed post the, the floods from last year, and a lot of water bodies are just chockers with carp. But I haven't seen too many of them being that. But, but anyway, it doesn't doesn't matter. It's, the fish are dying. Um, Is it a blackwater event? Is that what they call that? Yeah, I, I, I gather so. Um, now, blackwater events can be good, um, and it's it happens after floods or after water from the stream goes across the land, washes the leaves and twigs and you know call carbon back into the stream so that's like a normal process it gives a, a boost to the stream and carbon's good for growth um, however it can cause problems because as the leaves and twigs and other organic matter break down the, through bacterial action it sucks out the oxygen and um, and that's the problem you know fish need the oxygen they get oxygen out of the water um, and if it drops down too low, they'll die. They die. We had one in that little creek that I mentioned before near our house, and there was well, it's full of carp basically. But the black colour, do you know why the water goes black in that? Yeah, it's there. There are chemicals which colour the water, and um, top top of my head, I can't think of what they are now. But but it's it, there is okay. There so are chemicals which colour water. So yeah. the, yep. the, I can imagine. There's more than just fish dying there, that there are probably uh, invertebrates and things that also need oxygenated water. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, in other water bodies, I can think of a blackwater event in, or a, 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 actually there was a sediment slug in the Ovens River, which had the same sort of effect, but um, crayfish crawling out and were up in the banks of the river, you know, um, and so there'll be crayfish which have died. There'll be... Um, a lot of the ecosystem which is, which has has died there um, and the fact that the fish uh, floated and now sinking and now they're rotting down the bottom this means there's a whole lot of organic matter which is going to be pretty available 
and probably conditions are going to stay bad for a while. I, 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 it's just gobsmacking. Like, I can't imagine the stench that must be there. Like, one dead fish is not good. Yeah. But but a whole river of them would be bad. So it's not just the immediate kill then because the body of those fish now in the water, unless they can clean them, which is pr- probably almost impossible to do it. Yeah, like, I, I haven't haven't seen how they're going to approach it, but... Um, it's been going for several days now, if not a week. So I imagine quite a lot would have um, they've gone past that bloating stage and would have sunk down to the bottom. And I can't imagine people, you know, dredging the bottom to or scraping no. the bottom to try and get get stuff out. So it's going to have quite a long term. Well, I don't yeah. know. Do you have any idea of how what how how long this effect will be? Um, hard to say, but. You know, if we had a, a big rain event, you know, next week and the flushing flows or of higher volume of water went down, it would freshen up pretty pretty quickly or it could, you know, but that's a pretty big system, so it would take a lot of water. Um, but it, it could be, at, I don't know, weeks, months. It could be a long time. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Yeah, and if it did flush, then the chance that it would just push the whole lot downstream and then they might have a, a, another black water event yeah, down there. Yeah, push it well. down to the Murray. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Now let, let, let's talk about a, another thing that's not so much in the news now, and this is the Latrobe Valley. And so intensive coal mining, uh, coal-fired power stations down there, which are going to be decommissioned, Big holes in the ground related, that are caused by the coal mine. And uh, there's several pits, I understand. There has been talk of them flooding one of these coal pits. What does that mean? Um, yeah, flooding is one of the most commonly discussed rehabilitation options. And we're talking about mine rehabilitation here. It hasn't been done very much in Australia or even around the world, but it is... A, a viable option. These pits are, are large, you know, maybe close to around about 100 metres deep and uh, quite wide, of course. And, you know, there's ones in the Hunter Valley which are even bigger and deeper and wider. So it's it's not just a Victorian issue, but it'll be a, a broader Australian-wide issue had to re- properly rehabilitate these mines. Um, there water is seen as a pretty easy option i think um and i got we should also qualify that i'm not i have never been involved in this sort of detailed discussions but just this is sort of a general um observations i guess um um like the the holes in the ground need to be stabilized because some of the the walls are pretty steep and if they're going to be re-engineered to sort of a stable a slope then they'll you know they need to be made bigger again so so it's and, going to stop them eroding and then and collapsing and you know like one of them is very close to the the freeway the princess freeway that goes through and through um the towns of Morwell and that and so you need this ground stability of the, the stability of the nearby land is pretty important and so water lease would have the effect of having bring some stability to the resulting system now, at the same time, it's a large volume of water. Um, I think I saw an estimate that um, the three mines in the Latrobe Valley would take about 2,500 gigalitres of water. So 2,500 gigalitres. Yeah. 
um, don't really have a sense, except that it's a lot. It's more, more beer than we're going to drink this afternoon. <laughs> uh, but I, the usual measure is Sydney Harbours. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I don't have that. I, I prefer the MCGs myself. <laughs> but um, um, a lot. By, by way of scale, Melbourne, Melbourne uses about 450 to 500 gigalitres of water a year. So the city of Melbourne something in that order so it's it's you know several years of water and then it becomes a question of where does it if if they are to be filled you know where um where does water where, where, where does water come from and you know um the nearby rivers the latrobe river is one and the moore river is another but you know the latrobe river feeds the gippsland lakes and so their their ramps are classified you know so you know uh, and i know People really love the Gippsland Lakes, and so they should. They're really lovely, and so diverting a lot of water from from the river in order to fill the, the mine pit, and and the economy too that that derives and the food that we get from the Gippsland Lakes and so on, but fish breeding grounds, oysters, shellfish, and so on. I imagine that's a really important part. I mean, look, yeah. food is like the food production is almost ignored so much. You know, we've got so much this. Vast yeah. expanses of land and yeah. so on, but we keep wrecking it. And uh, so I'm on a bit of a rant here, Leon, but uh, uh, to damage the uh, East Gippsland Lakes by diverting a river uh, would be a really bad thing. Do you agree with that? If, if well, it has potential to be done badly, but but at the same time you may get get lucky, and if you've got um you know another La Nina year, you may. And you know floods going down the down the Latrobe if if they're diverted you know maybe they can quickly fill it up but but I think you can't count on that sort of thing so um, you, well, yeah. it sounds like with that volume of water that it'd be quite a few years of flow from the river I mean I'm not asking you to do the calculation off the cuff here for sure but, be, but I think if you could like. The Snowy River has been badly affected by the Snowy Hydro scheme. Mm. Uh, the water's diverted from the up the top of it, from its headwaters, and uh, that's suffered a lot. So I don't know how much you could take out of the Latrobe and the other river you mentioned. Yeah, the moor is much smaller anyway. But um, yeah, it would take quite a few years. You know, probably more than ten years of of some low level diversion to to fill it up. Or you know, maybe even longer, and you know, but the, but then you can you might start thinking, do we actually need to fill it? Maybe half full's good enough. You know, yeah, there could be questions like that. Um, but you also want to think about what are you going to do with the lakes? Are you going to have a fishery there? Are you going to use the water for irrigation? Are you is this going to be for public recreational use, swimming, boating, that sort of thing? Is, then is water quality good enough? for all those different uses. I can't imagine filling the lake up and then putting a fence around it and say, don't touch. Mm. So, you know, um, there'll be people rightly wanting to use it and then there'll be, is the water good enough for whatever those uses are? Yes. I'm assuming not drinking water, but, you know. You're not drinking water, yes. Well, you're heading towards the question that I want to ask, which is uh, the pollutants from a coal mine, what, what sort of things are they? And um, presumably a lot of those things would be active in that mine site still. What, what stuff comes out of a coal mine? Yeah, um, a, a range of things. Um, but uh, I think in any sort of mine rehab, they'll be required to cap the surface of the, of the 
of the coal. So it's not as if they'd be dumping it onto active coal. There'd probably be some sort of layer of soil placed on it, which is which would minimise or greatly reduce any sort of transmission. But typically, um, um, there would be heavy metals. Zinc would be present. Mercury. Um, Mercury a little bit, yeah, because mercury, there's a lot of mercury in the world, you know, so um, there would definitely be mercury in because it's it's present and in volatiles that system. as well. Um, yes, um, but um, I, I'm not sure how common they would be or how much of a problem and, they and would be. And how much is going to be mobilized yeah. into the lake itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, certainly you'd have to be careful that if there's any sort of, I don't know, a leftover problem areas that they're willing to really capped before any water's put in. So I think um, I'm asking you lots of detailed questions, of course, and I think what this points to is that before anything like this was attempted, it needed a very detailed, very thorough uh, evaluation. And, and we're kind of hinting at the sort of things that we, how that would be approached. And you've also yeah. told us about the uh, Malongola River, how we would, you would assess the, the the health of a waterway so yeah. a lot of those kind of things coming into play as well yeah like the systems are complex um and you know like it's a bit of feels like a bit of a cop-out to say that but uh, they are you know like as an ecologist i can see connections everywhere with things and you know like you you do one thing and you know something else somewhere completely different is gets gets affected um, now we can learn to live with that or, or not. But I do know in the case of the Trobe Valley, they've, they've got a, a commissioner set up and there's a lot of community consultation and so they're not rushing into it. Um, uh, but it's going to be a, an interesting development over probably decades. Yes, and it makes me think about what the word rehabilitation actually means when we're talking about a huge hole in the ground. And like you said, yeah. Leon, there's a lot of these. I flew over the Hunter Valley a few years ago and the pl and the ground is studded. There's lots of these big holes. We might take a quick song break here on Fuzzy Logic. Give my guest, Leon Metzling, senior water scientist. Uh, former. 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 <laughs> oh, you still, still knows. And a bit of foot tapping going on here in the studio of 2XX, the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with my guest, Leon Metzling a former senior water <laughs> scientist, but he still knows his stuff when it comes to the health of water. And uh, look, we, we're talking about the uh, filling of, uh, the potential filling of one of the, or more of the mine pit sites in uh, the East Gippsland. Let's have a happier story here because uh, uh, in Canberra, we do some pretty great stuff and I've been really, really pleased to see uh, that they've been converting some of these ghastly things he says to use uh, put a not too fine a point on my pet peeve is the concrete spoon drain the storm water drain and it's the engineering word for a, a stream is drain and water is a problem and has to be removed but what they're doing here in uh, Canberra has happened in quite a few places now is they're converting them back to something like their original condition and I'm very pleased. We'll have to get some of these people onto the show soon. But before we go into the detail of what sort of thing they're doing, Leon, uh, what's the effect of plastering a stream with concrete? <laughs> it can't be good. <laughs> um, but it is a, you know, it's a common feature of the cities we, we live in, um, unfortunately. Within Melbourne, it's stormwater 
um, urban stormwater runoff is seen as the biggest problem facing our waterways. Um, why do we have it? Uh, I guess we've built houses, we've built roads, we don't want them to be flooded, and so we've we've got the philosophy of moving the waterway as quickly as possible. Now, I can understand that, but there are bit, I guess that was done without the thinking of to the effects it would have elsewhere. Um, and so now we there's strong moves to um, capture water on site, you know, have rainwater tanks, have um, leaky tanks, have rain gardens on, on houses, properties. And so the, more of the water that falls on, on a property, on a house, is actually allowed to soak into the ground around that house before it you know, before it actually um, runs off. And and when it runs off, it's not just water. It picks up the um, all the nutrients you put on the garden, the fertilisers, the pesticides you put on your roses or other things. It runs yeah, off in huge amounts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, dog droppings. So just, just on the thing about managing water, now tell me if I'm right here, Leon, but uh, if you've got all these hard surfaces, I mean, you've got the roads and the buildings and so on, car parks, et cetera, et cetera, that makes a very, that's an impermeable catchment. But then when you feed all that into a concrete drain, there's no buffering in it. So when the drain, like you said, it just moves the water as quickly as possible. But in a natural stream, there's little leadies and there's pools and there's obstructions and stuff. So when the water flows down that, it, it backs up a little bit and, and it slows it down and you don't get this sudden rush am, am i on the right track there yeah like i'd be stepping back even further like onto the the land uh, on on normal land natural land there's a lot of infiltration there's a scope for water to soak into the soil now once you build a hard surface it, as you said it becomes impervious so driveways pathways roads footpaths they're all impervious so water hits it runs off straight away um, and yeah it goes into the drains and then into the natural water bodies waterways and, and we're disconnecting the stream or the whatever from the ground yep 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 and so so we where the groundwater is is lowered um, but more the biggest impact is that water which physically rushes into the stream causes physical scouring so more erosion but also um, brings a whole lot of contaminants in Phys physically you know if you look at the flow I'm, you know, I'm going to gesture with my hands now is is a very sh steep peak at, you know, from a from a stormwater in a stormwater type of catchment in a typical urbanized stormwater catchment in a natural uh, natural catchment with soils and there'll be a slower lower peak and it goes for longer so it'd be a, a more gradual rise and it would persist before it gradually fades off. In an urbanised, impervious type of catchment, it goes up, you know, shoots out the roof and then drops again really quickly. And so it's been and gone. And it's lost to the environment then. Yeah. And then causes, like you said, erosion. Yeah, well, let's have a look at, at what they're doing uh, in this program in Canberra. So they've got... Uh, uh, eight of 87 reaches surveyed. Oh, this is where they're, they're, they're ripping up the concrete and they're diverting into pools and ponds. And there's one near my house in Belconnen. And there's this uh, beautiful reeds, Phragmites, am I? Yep, common reed. Yeah, oh, cool. I got, <laughs> I got a, a name right. Uh, and they said eight of the 87 reaches surveyed were scored as in excellent condition. Uh, one or more than in, than in 2021. And the highest number of the nine years report produced, I've jumped ahead obviously here, 
none of the reaches received a degraded score and Tuggeranong's Creek's Isabella Pond was the only one to rank poorly. And so like I mentioned earlier that there's the blue-green algae problem in the Tuggeranong Lake. And so what you're saying is that the, the natural system, it will filter a lot of that stuff and prevent it from going into the lake, right? Um, to, to a large degree. Like you can get algal blooms Still. just about any, any time, any, anywhere, but uh, if conditions are right. But uh, it would reduce the, the, the incidence of it. Okay. And reading a little bit more from this uh, random patch, from this, bit from this story... They say the, uh, the the facilitator said eroded soil entering the waterway smothered the substrate. So we were talking about the the insects, the, the larvae and things yep. that live in the. Yeah. So 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 their they basically their their homes will be covered in sediment. Oh boy, we could have a conversation about horses in the Kosciuszko, couldn't we? Oh yeah, we, we sure could. <laughs> uh, just hit that one quickly, Leon. Ah, <laughs> uh, just. Um, uh, yeah, they obviously they affect some waterways when they cause the erosion around the wetlands and the, the like. Um, but also just the, the fecal contamination. The so uh, w- anyway, w- one of my friends on Fuzzy Logic interviewed a scientist there, and I think it's the is the gudgeon, the native gudgeon, 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 yeah, gudgeon fish, yeah. and they they live right at the very top of the headwaters of uh, some of the streams, and the horse mm. is damaging the the vegetation around and that's smothering the yeah. the gravel beds that they need to breed yeah yeah that you know horses are lovely animals but they're in not in the place where they should be i think up there yes well this this person goes on to say that when you smother a landscape you're eliminating a prime water bug habitat and that's food for platypus oh yes <laughs> and murray cod and the things that we love yes uh well uh, now, we're just almost out of time, Leon, but uh, just very quickly, uh, we've got a New Scientist magazine you know, recent issue in the studio with us, and it's a, a, a story about the uh, health of the British waterways. So this percentage of the rivers in healthy condition in there, Leon, do you want to quickly read those? Yeah, they break them up into um, England, 16% of... Rivers in England in good ecological condition. In Scotland, 55% in good or high. Wales, 44% in good ecological condition. And Northern Ireland, 33%. Now, how does that compare with uh, what you've seen? Um, Victoria has a system called the Index of Stream Condition, which goes around rating waterways. Uh, The last time it was done, which is probably about five or six years ago, um, probably about roughly a quarter, I can't remember the exact number, but about a quarter of the streams rated in good or better condition. So comparable numbers to a bit, bit better than England, but not as good as Scotland. Um, probably around about a third would have been in poor or very poor condition. Um, largely a lot of those would have been in the agricultural land, which had um, um, poorer water quality and uh, you know poor streamside zone. Um, while the the better streams would have been te- typically in the more in the eastern part of the state. All right, I have to cut you short there, Leon. And look, it's been fascinating. And uh, a message for our listener about our waters: um, look after them, that's value it. them. That's <laughs> it. That's it. Because uh, healthy water, healthy land, it's a good start. 
great to have your company today, Leon. Thank you very much, and uh, get you on the show again, maybe one day. For sure. Anytime, Rod, just ask. Good idea. Catch you later.